Let me invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 20. The title of the message this morning, as you see on your outline, if you're following along, along is Prophets Aren't Perfect. Prophets Aren't Perfect. Uh, the bulk of our time will be spent in chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and then we'll kind of, at the end, we'll close uh, looking at Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through, uh, through 34. Uh, but before we read the text, would you pray once more with me? Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we approach your holy word, we ask that you would be exalted during this time, that you would speak to us. Father, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would work in our lives to change us, to transform us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would anoint, anoint our lives, anoint our ears, anoint our minds, uh, and our hearts to love the truth of your word. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning, one of the things that I hope we see, and, and this is, uh, this is in, in honor in one sense of, uh, of the late Eugene Peterson, uh, a tremendous pastoral figure uh, who passed away this past week. He wrote a book called Along Obedience in the Same Direction. And I think as our thesis this morning, what I, what I hope we walk away from this text seeing it fits so well with Abraham's life is that discipleship with Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship with Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. Now you can ponder on that and think upon it for a few days uh, throughout the week and think about the different ways that you can apply that statement, particularly that statement, to your life. But as we look at Abraham's life and continue looking at the journey of faith, walking through this series, we, we come to a point in the story now where Abraham is sojourning again. In fact, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that we saw last week, Abraham moved from the Oaks of Mamre, he moved south, and he, he settled in a new place, a place called Gerar. Now the thing about moving to a new place is that you kind of have to start all over again, don't you? I mean, we're familiar with this. If, if we've ever moved or, or if we've ever changed jobs, we have to start all over in, in many respects. Uh, any new move that we, we make will bring certain challenges. They'll, they'll bring potentially bring difficulties, uh, difficult circumstances. And so when we move to a new city or a new town or a new neighborhood or, or change jobs or move to a new school, all of these things, all of these things, bring changes, a change of circumstances. And with those changes of circumstance, there, there are certainly opportunities that come along. There, there are challenges that come along. So one of the things that we will notice this morning, and we ask this question, how, how does Abraham handle these new circumstances? How does he handle these challenges? Well, as it turns out, he doesn't handle them so well. So as we read in Genesis chapter 20, follow along in the text as I begin in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that, sh- that you, surely, you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all the things, and the men... And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves, so they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. As we come to the first scene, verses 1 through 13, we come to realize that what's happening here is Abimelech is going and confronting Abraham. But even more so, we're dealing with, confronting, and, or we're, we're, we're seeing, confronting and dealing with habitual sin. Confronting and dealing with habitual sin. You know, it's not exactly a delightful topic to consider, is it? Confronting and dealing with habitual sin. You know, the first two verses of chapter 20, they, they remind us of an earlier story in the narrative. In Genesis 12, when, when Abraham had sojourned for a time in Egypt... Now, once again, he's, he's journeying toward the territory of the Negev, just like in, in chapter 12. And this time, he sojourns or he resides in Gerar as an alien. A- Abraham's a, a refugee in a foreign land in this sense. In similar fashion to the account with which he came to Pharaoh, upon entering the land of Gerar, he says that Sarah's his sister. And then we're just kind of told in, in, in short order, this is what happens. A king of Gerar, Abimelech, takes Sarah into his harem, basically to become one of his wives. 
The question that immediately springs to mind, at least for me, is didn't Abraham learn anything from his time in the land with Pharaoh? From the episode, this same thing that happened with Pharaoh, didn't he learn anything? Now, I don't know about you, but when I make big mistakes, I like to think that I learn from those big mistakes that I make. For example, the other day, I uh, probably told some of you about this the other day, I was, uh, I was splintering some wood. I was trying to get some, uh, some hickory to throw on the grill, and I had my hatchet, and I was hitting the wood, trying to get small slivers off of it. And uh, when I hit the wood, the hatchet kind of went into a knot, and it just stopped. So what do I do? I go and get a, a big hammer, and I'm, I have the, the wood here, and I'm hitting the, the blunt end of the hatchet with the hammer. And after a few hits, all of a sudden I feel something hit my ankle. And a piece of that hatchet had splintered off, and it had actually gone into my ankle. And I looked down, and I was bleeding, and so I tried to dig it out. And I'll, I'll spare you the, the details. I went to the doctor the next day, and they got it out for me. <laughs> the point is I learned some significant lessons. Right? What, what's one lesson you think I learned? No. That was not the lesson. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the lessons I learned, the first lesson, the most important lesson, let me give it to you, and you learn it, all right? The most important lesson, don't hit a hatchet with a hammer. That's first and foremost, okay? Because it's going to happen. Don't do it, all right? Second lesson, if you do, wear long pants and safety goggles, all right? That's the second lesson. So... If you do, we're, but, but most important, don't hit a hatchet with a hammer. Now, if, if I were to go back and repeat the same mistake, what would you think of me? Probably, maybe can't say it in here, okay? But you think that I was goofy, right? You think I was, how stupid? Why would he go and make the same mistake? Well, how many of you have made a silly mistake, the same mistake, more than one time? Right? Yeah. Uh, anybody ever iron their shirt while it's on? I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I know somebody who has, but I haven't done that, okay? Multiple times, in fact. But what, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get burned. Right? So, have, have you ever made the same mistake more than one time? <laughs> I'm not telling you who. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know, it, uh, I wasn't going to tell anybody, Wes. You know, the, the gravity of Abraham's sin, as we'll, as we'll learn in a, in a little while, is, is a little more significant than a mistake. But this is Abraham making the same sin over, and then a second time, again, and then again. But I want to I draw our attention. What about the gravity of our sin? What about when we begin to look at our own sin? I mean, I mean how many times, if we're going to cast stones at Abraham, let's examine our own sinful failings. How many times have you, in the midst of conviction over sin, made commitments before God and then failed to carry them out? Whether it's, it's laying down a particular struggle, an addiction, a bad habit, a, a commitment to lead your family in prayer and Bible study, right? 
How many times have we made these commitments over and over again, and then yet we fail to carry them out? I wonder if perhaps this is what it was like for Abraham, making a commitment to the Lord and then failing to carry it out, or realizing that he's He's done something wrong. He sinned in his, in his time with Pharaoh, but then when he comes into a new place, he, he repeats the same folly. Well, in verses 3 through 7, we have divine intervention where God intervenes. God appears to Abimelech in a dream. And his first words to Abimelech are, Behold, you're a dead man. I don't know about you, but if I had a dream and sensed that God was telling me, Behold, you're a dead man, I would wake up and say, Okay, God, you've got my attention, Right? And that's, in essence, what Abimelech does. He, 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 he says, God, you've got my attention. So God reveals to him, you've, you've taken a woman who's another man's wife. And then Abimelech, in verses 4 and 5, he gives this defense for what he's done. And the whole exchange, really, between he and God is unexpected. I mean, Abimelech is a pagan king. And so first he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? I mean, is, is Abimelech innocent here? This is reminiscent of Abraham's questioning of God when he, he says that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, if, you find 50, if, we, if there are 50 righteous people, will you destroy it? 40, 30, 20, 10, right? So Abimelech says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Then he declares that he's been misled. And he makes this incredible statement. Abimelech says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God's response to him is gracious. He says in verses 6 and 7, Yes, I, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Return her to her husband. And if you, if you don't, you and all who are yours will die. And so in verse 7, Abimelech goes to Abraham. Or God tells Abimelech, rather, to go to Abraham. And, and he says, Abraham will pray for you and you will live. Then in verse 8, we, we read that Abimelech gathered all his servants, and he, he told his servants, this is what happened. And it, it actually says there that his servants were very much afraid, right? They were very much afraid. Well, in verses 9 through 13, Abimelech goes and he confronts Abraham. In fact, in verse 9, there's a strong language. He says, what have you done to us? You've done things to me that ought not to be done. This is an astounding confrontation. The whole scenario is overflowing with irony. We have the ungodly king, the pagan king, the Gentile king, if you will, confronting the godly patriarch. What an indictment on Abraham's faith. When the, godly, when the ungodly has a greater respect for the bonds of marriage than the godly. He says, you've brought this great sin on me and my kingdom. This great sin, it's the sin of adultery. And Abimelech, the ungodly king and his servants, here's the irony. They fear God more than Abraham fears God here. You've done to me things that should not be done. In fact, Abimelech didn't share Abraham's faith. He didn't share Abraham's relationship to God. But Abimelech knew what Abraham's actions should have been. What a sad commentary. In verse 10, he asked Abraham, what, what made you do this thing to us? And Abraham's answer in verse 11, get this, it, it clues us into what's driving 
that very thing that's driving Abraham's actions. I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God in this place, and you would kill me because of my wife. So we see that fear, once again, has taken over the driver's seat of Abraham's faith. But even more incriminating, in verse 12, he says, she's my sister, right? And we find out, well, that's true. She, she's his half-sister. But friends, listen, a half-truth is still a lie, right? And we see that evidenced in, in this episode with Abraham and Abimelech. And in verse 13, he, he says in verse 13, so I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. This is how you show me you love me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. It, it turns out that this practice then for Abraham and Sarah, that it wasn't just a two-time occurrence. This practice was a, a normative, habitual pattern in his life. Every place that they had gone, this has been their practice upon entering the land. So what are we to make of this habitual faithlessness or habitual sin in Abraham's life? Well, I want, to suggest, uh, I want to suggest three applications for us to consider. Three applications. First, God doesn't let our sin slide. God doesn't let our sin slide. So, Abraham's sin affected others, right? I mean, we learned down in verse 18 that the Lord had closed all the womb, wombs of the house of Abimelech. There's a, a sickness, in essence, that's, that's afflicted. There's an affliction upon his house. His whole house was afflicted, and then there was also a death sentence pronounced on Abimelech, all of them. And then a third thing, from the human standpoint, Abraham had also put God's covenant with him in jeopardy. And it was God's grace, by God's grace alone, that God kept Abimelech from committing adultery. So, friends, I I want you to hear this, that our our sin is not insignificant. Our sin is actually significant. Our sin is condemnable. Our sin separates us from God. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus came and he died to forgive us of our sin. He paid the sin debt that we simply cannot pay. No amount of moral living, no amount of goodness, Nothing, that's what Galatians was all about, nothing can bring us into God's presence. That's right. So it's only by God's grace that the consequences of Abraham's sin are overcome. And so like like Abimelech confronting Abraham, isn't it a sad commentary when the world looks upon our lives when the world looks upon our communities of faith and says, what have you done? When the world looks upon the church and says, how could this be? You know, it's easy for us to follow Jesus when we're here on Sunday in worship service. It's easy for us to be followers of Christ 
when we're singing praise and, and with the praise band, when we're worshiping together, when we're sitting under the preaching of God's word together, when we're gathered around other Christians. That, that's an easy time. That's when it's easy for us to be Christians. But the challenge is when we live day in and day out around family, around neighbors, around co-workers who don't know Jesus and who don't share our faith. Consider Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light. Perhaps how this applies in the midst of the text. The salt of Christians gives a radical flavor of Christ. It acts as a preserving agent even within the culture, within the relationships that God has entrusted to us. And then as light, we're salt and we're light. As light, we, we shine the truthfulness of the gospel into the untruthfulness of our day, into the darkness of our day. So our lives are to evidence the hope of Christ. Our lives are to evidence the the, the new birth that God has brought about, this transformation through new birth that God has brought about in the lives of Christians. And this transformation, it's on display every day in one way or another. So part of what I'm advocating for is that as as Christians, we, we recognize and realize not put false pressures on ourselves, not put undue pressure on self, but recognize the bigness of God. Recognize how he desires to work in and through our lives in everything that we do. See ourselves as, as ambassadors for Christ. So friend, realize your presence as a Christian in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, is a visible and a verbal witness for Christ our actions and our words must match. So let us be careful to prayerfully discern how God wants to use us for good, how God wants to to use us for the building up of his kingdom, not for the tearing down of his kingdom. Let us be guarded against immorality, against unethical activity in the workplace, in our homes, right? Let, Let us be guarded in this way. And of course, this is all because of the the presence of the Holy Spirit within the lives of God's people. The second thing, not only does God not let our side, God, God doesn't let our, our sin slide, but secondly, God doesn't let Abraham's habitual sin diminish his love or derail his purpose in Abraham's life. You know, while the, while the consequences of Abraham's sin were not as bad as they could have been, we can't simply complacently assume that the same would happen for us. We must treat sin as a serious matter because it it is a serious matter. It's a life and death matter. And sin must be dealt with. Sin must be fled from. We can't excuse habitual sins as if they're somehow the, the metaphorical thorns in our flesh keeping us down. Let's learn from Abraham, right? Learn from Abraham. Abraham had a special place in God's plan of redemptive history, and so I'm I'm not going to so foolishly think that I can merit any special favor from God in the way that Abraham might have. But there's an important faith truth to learn from Abraham's habitual sin. And that important faith truth is that our habitual sin, our sin even, diminishes our love for God, and it binds us from pursuing God's purpose through us in the world. And it also does one other thing. It opens us up to God's discipline. 
You know, Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us. You can follow along on the screen, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside, set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us, or for him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The third thing I want us to see is that though God disciplines sinners, he continues to work for our redemption. Though God disciplines sinners, he continues to work for our redemption. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, you can go and read those verses and see that the chapter is teaching us about God disciplining his children. But I want you to listen to verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, the writer says, For they disciplined us, speaking of earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. here's Here's one of the reasons that God disciplines us in the midst of our sin, that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And though God disciplines sinners, he continues to work for our redemption. Do you realize that God is working even now? Philippians 2 says that God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working even now in your life in order to see redemption happen, in order to bring you and secure you fully until the day of redemption when Christ returns. God does discipline sinners. He doesn't let our sins slide understand that there is grace. There is grace through Christ. There is grace through the work that Christ has done on the cross because Christ himself took the penalty for our sin. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus Christ paid that penalty so that we don't have to pay it. Jesus paid that penalty so that we might have his righteousness. So here's what we see, that discipleship with Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship with Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. Not only do we see this need for confronting and dealing with habitual sin, as is the case in Abraham's life, this habitual sin, every place he went, this is is what he did. And we see the fallout from it, not only in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh, but now we see it in in Genesis chapter 20 with King Abimelech. The second scene I want us to see this morning is that God works through imperfect intercessors. God works through imperfect intercessors. Now, verses 14 through 18, we kind of hone in on this, but, but what's interesting to me is that even though Abraham has acted out of fear rather than faith, And he's caused this problem for Abimelech. What does God tell Abimelech in verse 7? Go to Abraham. He's a prophet. And he's going to pray for you. 
Now, now this is the first time in Scripture where we read the word prophet, where, where anyone is called a prophet. And Abraham himself is called a prophet. But he's not a prophet in the sense of Isaiah or Jeremiah or, or Ezekiel. He's a prophet in the sense of carrying out the central function of a prophet. And the central function of the prophet is intercessory prayer. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Isaiah, they're, they're declaring the oracles of God, right? That, that's, they're, they're speaking God's judgment into existence. And that's not what we see Abraham doing here. But what we do see Abraham doing is going to God, interceding with God for another. Also a note here is that for Abraham, Abraham is having to pray for the very guy that he caused to be in this situation. I can imagine that's pretty humbling for Abraham to have to do. I want to submit to you, though, that similar to Abraham, Christians, too, are called to have this prophetic function of intercession for God, or with God, rather, for others. This is part of the role that, and responsibility that God has called Christians to. We see it in the New Testament. I want to give you three transferable characteristics from Abraham's intercession to maybe the Christian's intercession for others. The first one is we see relationship. Relationship. With relationship, it's, it's Abraham, think about it, who has a covenant relationship with God. Not Abimelech. He's not the one that's in covenant with God. And it's on the basis of this covenant relationship between God and Abraham that God desires to work in the world and among the nations. That's an important distinction. This relationship that God has made with Abraham, it's through this covenant relationship that God now wants to engage his work in the world, right? So we, we can see the parallel there with, with those who are in covenant with God through Christ. And so although Abraham needs to repent, and he's the one who has sinned against Abimelech in this sense, he's also the one that God calls to intercede on behalf of another. Now in the New Testament, we see this role of of the prophet in Acts chapter 2, where Peter actually quotes from Joel in the Old Testament, from one of the minor prophets, and, and he's applying this role, this role of the prophet in the sense to the New Testament believer. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Look on the screen and follow along. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. We see here in in Acts, for the spirit-filled Christians, that there is a a relationship that we have with God, and there is an investment that God has made into the lives of those who are born-again Christians, and as he has poured his spirit out upon us, and in those days they will prophesy. And in one sense of the word, there is the proclaiming of God's truth, that role of prophesying in the sense of proclaiming. I submit to you that there's another role as defined here in Abraham and Abraham's interaction as God says, Abraham's a prophet and he will pray for you. And that other role is a responsibility for the called of God to intercede with God 
for others. God leads. A, a relationship with God leads us to a responsibility not only to proclaim, but also to intercede with God for another. And so this responsibility is clearly laid out in the New Testament. And so Abraham is responsible to intercede for Abimelech because God has brought Abimelech to him. And in a way, Abraham is God's ambassador to the nations, to this nation of King Abimelech. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul instructs us, right, to pray without ceasing. And so as we, we do this, we, we pray for friends, for family, for co-workers, for our community. We pray for ourselves. We pray for one another. In James, James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, Therefore, to the church, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So remember back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where the statement was made about Abraham that Abraham was a righteous man by faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. By faith, Abraham was counted as righteous. And then here we, we read in, in, in the New Testament, in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's effective for working. You know, a lot of times we think about the righteous person praying and we think, you know, that, that's not me. I'm such a sinner. I've sinned so much. How can I be the righteous person that would pray for somebody? But I want you to understand that righteousness doesn't mean, it doesn't equal sinlessness. To be a righteous person doesn't mean that you're a sinless person. To be a righteous person means that you're walking in obedience to God. It means that you're confessing your sin before God. But being a righteous person means that you're, you're, you're living in obedience by faith to God. And in a sense, this is what Abraham's doing. He's messed up. He's sinned. God has called him out on it. He's brought Abimelech to him, and he says, Abraham's going to pray for you. He's going to intercede for you. And listen, it's because of this relationship, this covenant relationship that Abraham has with God that he becomes the vessel through which God is working in the midst of the world and in the nations. And what I'm trying to connect for us this morning is this covenant relationship that Christians have with God through Jesus Christ puts us in a similar position as Abraham. That we as God's people, we are the ones who have relationship with him. And we are the ones who are speaking the truth of God's word, who are interceding. We have this responsibility to intercede on behalf of others, on behalf of one another. There's a third characteristic of intercession that I want to point out to you. Uh, and you can go and read Romans 8, 26 through 28 to see how the Spirit intercedes for us. I'm going to move along to the third characteristic of intercession, and that is reconciliation or to be reconciled. You know, and this isn't one that's expressly in the text, but this characteristic of intercession is more of what happens to us, between us and God. You see, when we intercede for others, it, it has a reconciling effect in our own relationship with God. It's kind of like the marriage relationship, 
right? If my wife and I are at odds and, and, and we've done something to offend one another, or one of us has offended the other, pridefully, we, we might not want to come and confess that and be vulnerable, right? But you have to at some point. I mean, otherwise, it's, it's going to be miserable, right? You have to come and you have to be vulnerable. And you have to confess that. And, and, and in one sense, this is kind of the, the reconciling, the coming back to God. When sin has entered the relationship and, and we feel distant from God, this time of prayer, it, it's an intimacy with God. This is being vulnerable before the Lord and interceding for somebody else, praying for the needs of somebody else. You know what scripture always comes to mind? <laughs> the prayer of a righteous man works or is effective, right? And it makes me think, is there sin in my life that I'm not confessing before God that would hinder my prayer, that would hinder the effectiveness of, of my prayer? So perhaps this is what it did for Abraham as he sinned against Abimelech but also sinned against God. We see at the end of chapter 21, verse 33, in fact, that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He planted this tree in the place where he had made a covenant with Abimelech. And one of the reasons that he makes a covenant with Abimelech is because Abimelech comes to him and he, he notices something about Abraham's life. He says, God is with you in all that you do. So we learn a little bit about God's economy and his promise of blessing through Abraham to the nations. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God says he's going to bless the nations through Abraham. And we even see that a little bit happening here. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the unbelieving world should be blessed through their interactions with God's covenant people and not cursed. In other words, the church should be a blessing to others and not a stumbling block. So in verses 22 and 23 of, of chapter 21, specifically verse 22, Abimelech says to Abraham, I notice that God is with you in all that you do. And in essence, he's saying, I want to be part of that. I want to be uh, in covenant with you. And friends, listen, I, this is what a long obedience in the same direction should look like for disciples of Christ. That we are kind of people that give off the aroma of life to life, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We give off the aroma of life to life. Now, the shadow side of that is we give off the aroma of death to death as well. But we give off the aroma of life to life. And Abimelech saw the hand and the blessing of God on Abraham, and he wanted to be in covenant with Abraham, so they, they made a covenant at Beersheba. He was drawn to Abraham because of his faith in God. But I want you to know that God is much bigger than Abraham's faith, and God is much bigger than our faith as well. You know, in, in seminary, I was working for UPS, and UPS always wanted to hire seminary students. The reason they wanted to hire seminary students was because they were always on time. We talked about this the other day. They were always on time. They worked, they worked hard. They were honest, right? Um, and they, they were integral in what they did. So 
it lent, so seminary students lent themselves to being a good testimony to a company, the UPS um, station or UPS store, uh, the drop-off point, whatever it's called, warehouse, that's the word I'm looking for. The UPS warehouse was near the seminary campus, so it was a convenient location for seminary students. But from their perspective, hiring Christians from the seminary was a smart business decision. But inherent in that decision, they knew there was a certain moral and ethical code grounding about our lives. And I believe what, what they saw was the hand of God and what we did, and it drew them to us. I think the same can be said in our work, wherever we are, whatever our vocation, whether it's school, neighborhood, the larger community, uh, in the vocation that we have, as we faithfully live out a long obedience in the same direction to Christ, people will see that. People will be drawn to that. Some people might push you away, sure. Many may, may reject, but there will be people who are drawn to that consistent and faithful witness. So let us never doubt that God is at work through us in the world, in our workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. God doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to walk in obedience. So we need to realize that we're not alone in our mission. I want to close with this last point here. We see in Scripture, Christ is the perfect prophetic intercessor. While in a sense we are called to be intercessors, this prophetic role that God has called Christians to through the relationship that we have with God, through the responsibility he has given us, and it being part of of reconciliation to God, we see that Christ himself is the perfect intercessor. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 22 Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, Peter's quoting this because Moses has spoken forward of of one who would come. And Peter's saying, this is the person of Christ. And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the one who prayed the high priestly prayer for us in John 17, praying for not only the disciples in the wake of his going, but also for all who would come after them, believing upon the message that they have preached about Jesus. He is the one who, in Hebrews 7.25, it speaks. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Does that give you encouragement? To know that Jesus himself always lives to make intercession for you in the midst of your struggle with sin, in the midst of the difficulties that you walk through, Jesus himself always lives to intercede for us. So even Christ himself makes intercession for us. Jesus intercedes for us as God desires to use us in his kingdom work. Discipleship with Christ is a long obedience in the same direction. Prophets aren't perfect. You're not perfect. You're not going to be perfect. But you can live a long obedience in the same direction. How is God at work in and through you, Christian?
What is God doing in your life, desiring to do in your life, in the midst of the vocation he's called you to? How is he working through you to live the gospel and share the gospel and give evidence of the gospel in your workplace? How is he doing that student in school for you, with your friends? Are you being a leader or a follower? Is there something the Lord's trying to get get you to let go of in your life? And finally, do you realize your privilege of interceding with God on behalf of others? It's a privilege that every believer has to intercede with God on behalf of others. You know why? Because of a relationship that we have and a responsibility that we've been given. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. I ask that you would take your word and help us to think through it, to meditate on it, to apply it to our lives. And I pray, God, that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit and change us and transform us so that we live faithfully for you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to